Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And we're so excited to have Astra Taylor here with us today. Astra is a filmmaker, a writer, an author. Um, I've watched her latest film, What is Democracy, now three times. Made me cry each time. Uh, And I'm so excited to talk about her new book, Democracy May Not Exist, But You'll Miss It When It's Gone which is uh, such a wonderful, thoughtful contribution to both political philosophy and political praxis. And so uh, thank you for coming and joining us today, Astra. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so your book is so great because I feel like it is enacting that which it's discussing, which is it's attempting to help the polis, the, the people that are reading it, and also those that are watching your great film, uh, figure out how to wrestle with what it means to do self-rule collectively, right? And and you point out uh, at the outset that this involves a lot of paradox, a lot of tensions that we have to kind of work through in this dynamic way. Um, so you know, at what point did you realize that democracy, the concept, the history, the politics is kind of imbricated with all these tensions and all these paradoxes? Um, well, well, thank you for that. But I also I like what you just said, which is the book is about how to wrestle with. In other words, it's not even it's not about how to do it. And and it, I think you know, there's this is probably bad for like marketing or actually making a book that sells, right? Because there's so many books that are like rules for life, right? Or lessons for the 21st century, or you know, three ways to fix X, Y, or Z. And <laughs> this book is like no, this is like let's let's wrestle some more. Let's let's add complications and and think things through. Um, not and and not in the way that's sort of solution driven because you know I think you know hey we're on left anchor right like we know as leftists a lot of political solutions or or policies we'd like to see implemented. Um, so instead, yeah, the the projects are really about bringing political philosophy into the discussion which I think is about sort of wrestling with things that don't have clear answers. Um, and, you know, the, so, so I was making the film, what is democracy? I, I wrote the proposal for that in 2013, uh, was filming all the way until the election of Donald Trump. So, you know, late 2016. And I was trying to, you know, think about what the sort of ordering principles of it were. And I don't know, I was actually, I was driving, um, and, and I was like, okay, paradoxes, this is actually what I'm getting at because I'm trying to inhabit that irresolvable space. And, and, and I was doing that in a way selfishly because what I was wondering is like, why is democracy so fucking hard to do? Right? Yeah. Like it is a pain in the ass. And, you know, as a, as a lefty, this isn't something that only lefties have as a trait, but, you know, I can be pretty like self-righteous and smug and think I know what's right and how things should be. (laughs) And yet when you get in a group and you try to do it, like the meeting goes off the rails or actually it turns out that your theory doesn't have all of these other layers of nuance or detail that you need. And, um, and, and so the, I think, so the, the book is arranged explicitly as paradoxes. The paradoxes are implicit in the film because the film needs to live as a, as a piece of art where you can empathize with the characters. You know, the, mm. the book, I'm allowed to be more analytical and sort of give my framework away. And so, you know, what I say in the introduction is I'm not talking about a Marxist contradiction, right? So Marx, I think, really, you know, was onto something when he said there are these contradictions that are central to capitalism, like the divide between, you know, capital and labor or, you know, commonwealth and private property, and that, you know, um, 
these things are going to clash and there could be an economy where they're resolved. He called that communism, right? It's like where there aren't some, you know, a handful of rich people and masses of poor people. But what I'm getting at is like something different, which is, well, you know, democracy, part of why democracy is so difficult is because it has these tensions that won't resolve even under some perfect democratic communist utopia right so we'll always have to have this tension between how to live in the present and how to plan for the future uh how to weigh you know expertise with mass opinion because not everyone can be an expert at everything uh how to balance choice with coercion you know when is coercion legitimate in a in a in a society where people self-govern so the book is me working through these tensions you know and saying democracy yeah it's not something we just have it's this it's this process of always think, thinking these things through and you know hopefully uh the conditions under which we're thinking get better <laughs> and more just but For sure. these problems aren't going away i had a um j- just a prefatory um <clears throat> question about the canadian board of of film is that what it's called and uh, i was the just national film curious. board of canada Yes, right, right. Good old Canada. And I just like, like, can, you know, as a, as a, you know, uncultured American swine, I was just like, what? The government's funding lefty propaganda? <laughs> like, what is this madness? So can you explain like what that is and like, like how it works? The National Film Board of Canada is unique in the world. So I should begin by saying I'm a Canadian and only in the last year have I officially become American. I claimed my citizenship at long last. Uh, but I, I'm a Canadian who grew up in the American South, in the other Athens, Athens, Georgia. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, but Canada has a, a wonderful history of investing in documentary film, actually. And the National Film Board of Canada is unique in the world in that it creates, it supports the creation of director-driven feature-length documentaries. So it's not attached to a broadcast. So it's not something that has to fit into the mold of like television or, you know, now whatever it would be, digital series, but freestanding documentaries and they support the project from inception all the way through distribution um but they have a history of doing very interesting political films i mean and i think part of why i ended up where i am is that as a young person i mean i'm talking as like a teenager i watched a film about noam chomsky noam chomsky Mm. manufacturing consent it's called right it's a three-hour epic national film board of canada produced this film awesome. right wow. and um so it's quite interesting because people occasionally in a Q&A will be like oh did you not touch on you know some issue because you were censored by the government and I'm like oh no you do not understand the Canadians um their advice to me creatively was you know what sets your film apart is that it's philosophical there was a lot of news driven social issue documentaries so go with the philosophy do what it is that you do that's unique and this is a film that I'm absolutely certain could not be made in the American context because the American context is market driven. So it's sort of like what will get the most clicks, what will be the biggest at the box office. And it's philanthropy funded, which means what does what does the current crop of billionaires, you know, who are in the film space, <laughs> what are their interests? What what What's the trendy thing for a, a billionaire executive producer to make a film about? And in 2000 late 2013 when i pitched this film it definitely wasn't democracy and it wouldn't be you know democracy from the angle i'm getting at it from so i definitely would not have made this film if it wasn't if it wasn't for the state support that that 
this institution allows. And I think it really gives the lie to this idea that, you know, state-supported culture is just going to be this, like, lowest common denominator. Right. Pablum, yeah. right, which is sort of the cliché, uh, which is really an interesting thing to encounter in the United States because what it forgets is that actually why funding for the arts in America is controversial goes back to the NEA4, the National Endowments for the Arts, and why those why <laughs> that funding was controversial was that actually the artists were making work that was too edgy, not that it not because it was bland. No, so there's right, something about, it, yeah, state support gives artists a certain freedom to work outside the market that can be really liberating. I'm so glad that the Canadians exist for that purpose. Hopefully one day, one day we might also embrace that ethos in our state uh, funded activities, right? It it actually did remind me though, back during New Deal days, um, they had a a bunch, you know, part of the Works Progress Administration, I believe, was funding artists to paint murals and stuff. Absolutely. they hired a Woody Guthrie to like tour the all the big dams that they were building, and he was writing songs about hydroelectric power and whatnot. And um, yeah, you know. I have a I have a little history tidbit about that. I wrote a piece recently for the Baffler magazine. Um, and I think it's called Envisioning the People. I can't remember the name of my own article because you write the article, but you never title right. your own piece. You're right? not in charge of that. Um, yeah. But it's about how the people have been visualized. So how do you actually represent the people? And so I talk about some of the New Deal era murals and how radical they were, like very political and controversial. Um, but one historical fact I couldn't get in there is actually the person who first had the idea that the state should fund the arts was actually – the daughter, the teenage daughter of Frances Perkins, who's the first female cabinet um, secretary in the history of the U.S. She's like, you know, was this radical um, labor secretary who, who, you know, pushed a lot of the, the social policies that we value from that period. And her, yeah, her teenage daughter loved arts and was like, well, hold on. Why can't the artists be part of this process, too? They could make our world more beautiful. And um, Frances Perkins took that idea to FDR. So we have That's a teenage awesome. girl to thank for that history. Nice. Absolutely. I, and I think both the documentary and your, your book, which talks about it, shows that it's simple prejudice to think that either the young or the old or the rich or the poor have any exclusive rights to, to wisdom or insight or anything else. And, and that, you know, people are people and, and it can it can arise like liberatory, emancipatory politics and insight into human nature can arise from you know, the, the teenage daughter that had that idea or you know, just people that you interview on the street. Uh, it must have been really interesting to to talk to, to professors and then people from different countries and different nations in, in this moment to, I think, I assume, discover that uh, human beings all have these capacities and potentials in them. And, and maybe that says a lot about the potential for democracy. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because actually, so right before you all called me. I was looking at the election results from Europe, right? And thinking about the people who voted for the Brexit party and the fact that Farage is like, right now he's like gloating <laughs> about the results. And and there's this part of me, right? Like anyone who's like, God damn it, people, you're so, ah, oh, you know. Yeah, frustrating. You know, so frustrating. Driving me crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think what was interesting about you know going through the process of making this film and then writing this book is that i i you know a documentary like making a documentary making a documentary it forced me to go out and talk to strangers and engage in you know sure it wasn't like um disciplined social science research but i talked to a lot of people and um and what i found was that 
people are, um, people do have a lot of wisdom. And, you know, we live in a society that excludes that wisdom and that doesn't um, facilitate that wisdom or really appreciate it. And so, you know, the film, I tried to not portray people in an overly idealized light. I try to show the people in their, in their, you know, ugliness and, and their, um, and their complexity. But I really, I, I do think that so many of the most valuable ideas and the ideas the best aspects of democracy, you know, came from people who, you know, weren't in positions of power, who weren't highly credentialed. And so the film is making a case for a democratization of our conception of who counts as an expert. So, so my, my mantra making the film was, okay, I'm going to approach every single person like they're a philosopher and talk to them in this way that takes them seriously and engages them on the level of ideas. And then I, in the book, I try to continue that by, placing the insights from the people I met next to the sort of usual suspects, right? Madison and Jefferson and Marx and, you know, and then suddenly you're talking to someone who's, you know, a formerly incarcerated barber. <laughs> and, and that's the thing about democracy that's, that's risky about it, right? Is that there's, there should be no threshold for participation, right? It's not a meritocracy or I, there is a word for this. I always forget the word for a, a, a society where like only the educated can vote. Um, yeah, like, epistocracy. When, yes, epistocracy, Epist right? Um, and you know, and uh, and and no, I'm trying to make the case that no, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of insight that is that is valuable, and and you know, I think the question I'm implicitly posing is, well, who actually knows who knows the most about how our world runs, how it operates, and its injustices, right? The people who Occupy society's right. bottoms rung, uh, bottom rungs and who are experiencing, you know, mass incarceration from the inside <laughs> or someone who has a kind of theoretical understanding of, you know, what the law should be, but never right. lives up to. Oh, and very often the people that don't understand are often um, being conditioned by capitalism in a way to just accept. Uh, you brought up Gr Gramsci in your in your book, um, and it is a wonderful juxtaposition that you have with your interviewees and and the thinkers you draw in. But the the hegemonic thinking that just pervades that if if there isn't kind of the kind of uh, educating that comes through talking to each other and organizing, um, there is this kind of it's like the water you breathe. You just assume that capitalism right will always exist and the values it espouses are the right ones and and so often that's the problem not that somebody hasn't had a certain formal education um but uh but yeah so so people are always educated it's just a matter of what forces or people are doing it right yeah i think it's interesting i mean there's a i begin the book you know because the book is an exploration of democracy's paradoxes with the most famous paradox of all russo's paradox the founding paradox which is you know it distilled is essentially, well, how do you make a democratic people out of an undemocratic people, right? So if we've been conditioned by capitalism, which is a, an economic system that concentrates wealth and power and encourages competition and, you know, wants uh, rule by the market as opposed, as opposed to like popular deliberation, then how do we break that, you know? So we can break it by organizing, by trying to enact democracy in our relationships, at our workplaces, you know, um, 
by expanding our conception of democracy beyond the ballot box. But I think there's another paradox which kind of only gets said implicitly later in the book, and it's the it's or it's the inverse of I think the inverse of Rousseau's paradox is also at mm. work, and it's the it's how elites view things, and it's essentially well, how do you create an undemocratic people out of a democratically spirited people, right? Because, mm. and that's what that's what um, that's what our system does, right? When it makes it actually uh, extremely difficult to do something as as simple as voting. Right. So people right. have to register and then they have to skip a day's work. And it's like, actually, there are all of these systems that make basic participation a challenge. Um, and so, you know, I, to go back to your first question about just talking to people on the street, I mean, I think what I initially I would ask people, OK, what is democracy? And people would be a little flustered, like they wouldn't have a, a, a definition on hand that satisfied them or was particularly deep or or personally meaningful but then once i started engaging them i realized like oh they have they actually have a lot of thoughts they actually have you know a, a political life it's just that it hasn't it's it's not again it's not encouraged and it's there are very few forums through which people actually practice democracy in their day-to-day -day lives and you know political yeah. philosophy is something that few people get to actually engage with directly i mean instead we just are subjected to the news or maybe we right. get to study it in school. So, you know, in the end, I, I would say that making these projects has has made me um, made me more committed to the idea of democracy, even on days like today when bad news is coming in. <laughs> um, you in 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 the uh, in your book and and especially in the documentary, you. Um, you sort of frame all of the all of the little sections around uh, quotes from Plato, who is kind of notoriously skeptical of democracy, and and you you say that uh, you 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 point out that Plato, you know, one of the things he says, democracy inevitably leads to tyranny because you get a demagogue who plays on the on the passions of the of the you know lumpen proletariat or whatever. Um, and that, you know, seems pretty much like the, the Trump base. But on the other hand, you also say that Plato has been kind of misunderstood and that he's maybe not quite as much of an aristocrat as people might think. So can you dig into that a little bit? You know, what your what you've learned from from thinking about Plato and democracy in modern uh, modern context? Yeah, I'm I'm soft on Plato. I mean, it's so true. I mean, it's not just Plato was skeptical <laughs> of democracy. I mean, Plato hated democracy. Right. I mean, yeah. and he hated democracy because democracy put his teacher, his icon, his guru, Socrates, to death. Right. And he was also writing in the period of, of sort of democratic decline. I mean, he had his he had his reasons. Um, but I think, you know, one thing, though, you glean from reading the dialogues, Plato's dialogues, though, is that the very form of them kind of subverts his anti-democratic claims because it's about people deliberating it's about you know sort of socrates this gadfly being in the street and talking to strangers and engaging them in in this um philosophical inquiry so i think plato's texts are complicated and really interesting i also think when we read texts from the past you know we don't it's not fair to to go to those texts and say hey if you if this text doesn't solve my problems or you know affirm my sensibilities then it's not valuable right it's like well why yeah. is plato asking the questions yeah. he's asking um right. and the republic is a really interesting text because it's dealing with again this period of decline and and so people the cliche reading of 
the Republic, what people remember is, oh, you know, Plato wanted a philosopher king because, of course, he's a philosopher. So therefore, it's like this narcissism, right? <laughs> but it's more complicated than that. He's, as you just said, he he's making the argument that democracy devolves into tyranny because of the problem of oligarchy, because of the divide between the rich and the poor, which creates conditions for these demagogues to come and play on the passions of the people and to say, hey, you know, I'll make your lives better. And his solutions have to do with creating a class of rulers who are both male and female. He's very clear on this. That there can be philosopher kings and queens. They're a, a sort of guardian class that are indigent and propertyless, and therefore they rule for the good of the community. And so Plato's problem with democracy wasn't that it, you know, um, uh, wasn't that he just didn't like the people is that he thought the system man, you know, marginalized the wise. Um, so I think there's just an interesting parable in there, right? This parable of decline. And, you know, it also kind of challenges those of us who are focused on capitalism because what, what it shows, you know, ancient Athens was, a, was a slave state. It wasn't capitalism as we know it, but you still have this problem of inequality breaking the city in two. Um, and, and so, you know, it's something it's, you know, he, he, he was prescient. He's not, you know, a psychic or something. He's not, he's not giving us some, some, uh, lesson from history that just repeats itself, but he's give it's a, it's something to sort of think with and think through. Um, and so, you know, I play with it. Uh, I play with it in, in the film as a kind of motif because also I think, but to go back to, to one thing I just hinted at it, partly it's because, you know, I think, as we make social progress, we shouldn't flatter ourselves so much, right? Like, for me, yeah. there's still something about a Plato that's worth going back to and learning from. Just like there's, it's worth it to go back and learn from Rousseau. And and so the movie is also me trying to say, I can learn from these sort of um, giants of political philosophy and put them in conversation with teenage kids, from Miami or with refugees or with trauma surgeons and sort of read these texts in a way that, that, you know, I think gives them new life and, and new relevance um, because, you know, we need to learn from everything that we can in this moment. So Plato becomes something, yeah, he's sort of, he's also, um, there's a, a more banal reason though <laughs> that I'm going to confess to. And it's that, you know, Plato, he represents the beginning of Western political philosophy. Like that is the foundational text, right? It's this wonderful confounding yeah. founding text. But to the viewer of the film, he also just signifies like old times, right? Because we're <laughs> yeah, so stuck yeah. in the now. You know, it's everything so is like yeah. the latest tweet, the, the yeah. you know, viral outrage. Um, and so in the, you know, the film is trying to be more timeless than that. And so there's this moment where actually when Plato comes on screen, where it's actually just, you know, there's a sort of poetic fragment and it's like, take, take a different viewpoint, you know, step back, get a more meta perspective. So he's also useful to me in that way. Like, because he's just, he's, he symbolizes the ancient. <laughs> right now. And that's beautiful. And not just because I'm Greek, partly because I'm Greek, but also it's beautiful because like you said, people are so, their pre the presentism is crazy, but also every there's no possibility. Everything's impossible. Everyone knows everything. And 
you know, the timelessness, which again, paradoxically is seen through looking at history shows all the different possibilities that have occurred and then might occur again. And that, that, I mean, you truly are a political philosopher in the sense that you want to keep changing the, the, the way that people see things and, and rethink things and, and open up possibility in both theory and praxis, which, which is beautiful and wonderful. By the way, I loved the translations that you had. I hadn't seen those translations before of the text. What, how did, uh, and maybe this is just a, a selfish thing, but how did you do those translations? So I was very, I have to say, this is where I'm like, I am not a scholar. So what I did was I got every translation I could find and sort of knew the quotes that I wanted and sort of laid every translation out and then gave myself the freedom to mix you and did match. It. You translated right? it. Right? Yes. Awesome. Because of all, well, no, because I just think it was, you know, I mean, I could have been, relig- I could have religiously stuck to the Jowlet or some sure. classic translation, yeah. but, you know, I, I'm working in a vernacular and wanted that, that moment. I mean, the moment where I knew that Plato also had to be central, um, was when I was filming at Piraeus Port, when yeah. at the peak of the refugee crisis, right? So I'm there before the EU Turkey deal went through. And that is the site, literally the site of the Republic, right? So this, right. you have this, you know, image of Socrates in that space and what what the the film comes home to that space you know 2500 years yeah. later and it's still this site of democratic contestation transformation and encounter right and so that's you know again history doesn't repeat itself and you can't you know look <laughs> to these ancient texts and just sort of apply them in this straightforward way and yet here we are still we're living through something analogous, right? And and this space is still a space of democracy. It, so that was when it was like, okay, this is all coming full circle. Yeah, I, I remember um, it, I went to Reed College and they everyone, they make you take a great books class, you know? You got to read Plato. I, I thought I wanted to go to Reed College. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a pretty good school, you know. I mean, it, it seemed like the place to be, and I wasn't there, you know. <laughs> it, it's like any of those liberal arts schools, but they I, there's a lot of them. I think that they they do that, you know. It's you got to you got to take the different different types of things, get a well rounded education, whatever that means. But but the for every everyone's got to take Hume one ten and and scrape books, you know. A lot of dead white guys, but they they try to make it somewhat more inclusive. But I something that stuck with me uh, uh, ever since was one of the first, you know, so you have lectures and then you have like a discussion, um, whatever you call it, s- section with, uh, you know, eight or ten people um, and one of the pro- one of the professors. And um, she said, you know, towards the beginning when we were having like a kind of classic lefty, you know, point out the obvious stuff. Oh, yes. Thucydides is a misogynist or whatever. Um that like it's very easy to point out things that are wrong about something, especially when you're writing, you know, two thousand five hundred years after the fact. But what is more, what is more difficult and more interesting and more rewarding is to try to figure out how they might be right, it, even if, perhaps especially if you if you disagree with their conclusions, you know, because these are these are smart folks, and and I think as you say, it, it's always worth investigating. Um, you know, these, these, these thinkers and trying to figure out what relevance they may have. Well, it's interesting because also, I mean, when you say it's that the canon is 
dead white guys. I mean, Plato, there wasn't a conception of race when, when the Greeks were writing, right? I mean, this is a, a later invention. And I mean, I think for me, you know, I'm very attuned to, um, the politics of citations. I mean, I recently read a book. This is work of philosophy around about democratic socialism and I won't name it, but I just couldn't believe that it like basically didn't cite a single woman, you know? And, wow. and for me, I just feel that as a woman, I know we can think, I know there have been interesting women throughout history. And so it's this, you know, it's sort of this, again, this approach of like, yes, I don't have to write things out, but let's read them in juxtaposition with other texts. Let's hear them with other voices. And so, you know, the film, the film is, you know, for a, for a, for a film about philosophy, for a film about politics, there's a lot of women in the film. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. there are young women, there are old women. And the same with the book. It's like, what, what, how can you present an image of democracy that's, it's, it's not that's politically correct, but that's more accurate, <laughs> you know, yeah. in yeah. its representations. And, um, and so, and because I think those juxtapositions are fruitful and interesting, you know, so, you know, that means not, um, not just giving a kind of knee jerk critique of the canon. But bringing that, bringing it into dialogue with all of this amazing stuff that, you know, hasn't been uh, properly considered part of democratic theory and practice. I mean, and so I pointed this out in a book forum essay from the fall, which is, you know, so many of the new books on the crisis of democracy, you know, are all written by men and you read them and they're all about democracy as this male business. And then maybe feminism kind of pops around and pops in and like, when the suffragettes are marching or something like that. And it's like, no, I just, I'm trying to do something, something different. You know, I don't quite have a word for it, but it's just like something that sees, sees that, that these other voices are not just a sort of like garnish we add at the end of the story. (laughs) Right. Right. It was brilliant and wonderful and beautiful to read and see Angela Davis, Wendy Brown, um, right? Brilliant Greek philosophers, academics that I didn't even know uh, that are women, right? And then wonderful uh, just individuals from the the Syrian refugee. To it, it was just um, like I said, I, I it was thought provoking, and I cried every time I saw the film, and just loved rereading about those uh, brilliant insights. Like you know, f- and I think that synthetic integral approach is so wonderful. Um, and you know, thank you for doing that. That's just um, I really appreciate I that. That's really music to my ears. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, these Greek women philosophers that I found were, I almost felt like I conjured them because I had this idea of an intellectual woman leading me around the ancient Agora, leading me through the ruins. And um, with the help of, of a friend who was working as a research assistant, we literally, you know, we found her on the internet and had a Skype call. And I was like, this you are i'm gonna make you a star you know um and because you know because these are also people who i think i would have liked to see when i was younger because i you know this idea of of you know thinkers who are people i mean i think part of what the film is also trying to do is to um challenge this idea that political philosophy is this rarefied thing you know or that intellectuals aren't regular people um so you see for example in this one character in the film um you know she's she gives us the sort of history of the the founding of ancient athenian democracy but then you also see the way the economic crisis in greece is affecting her life and her family and and it's this thing of like nobody nobody it 
is unaffected by the political challenges of our time, right? (laughs) Nobody's just a sort of a head without a body who isn't going to be part of this broader, you know, political um, crisis. So the, you know, the, the movie is, is, yeah, is trying to show, show political thinking as a sort of embodied personal. Yeah. That, um, on that note, in the I think in the book and the film, if I'm not mistaken, you 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 talk ex, uh, for a while with a, a, a barber uh, who was a prisoner, um, uh, ex 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 prisoner, and that you know, on the topic of ordinary people routinely having like quite sophisticated understandings of how things are are happening, you know, through through some pretty you know, grim experience. Um, this guy really stood out. Um, can you can you talk a little bit? You know how how you how you found that guy and and um, you know what what you think his experience illustrates about you know modern society. Yeah. So there are some characters that are only in the film and some characters that are only in the book. You know, it's interesting who lived in each medium because the mediums are really different. I mean, they're in. They're yeah. almost incompatible mediums. Like they, they don't use the same uh, logic. Uh, they don't have the same uh, level of emotion or uh, like film has this visceral quality that my type of writing doesn't. But Ellie Brett, who is the character referring to, he actually, he worked in both spaces because I think what he said is so profound. So he, when he was young, around 20 years old, he um, committed a crime. He was in, he spent his twenties in lockup and he did a lot of thinking and a lot of reading. And so in the, in the film, as he sort of talks about his experiences and his ideas, what you get is this incredibly astute understanding. So again, to this question of, well, who's a philosopher and who's an expert, right? You know, is the expert on criminal justice, um, you know, the law enforcement officer or the policy person or the public defender, or is it the guy who's been there on the inside and, and seen the inequities, seen the differences of treatment between, you know, someone like him and a white collar criminal. But his analysis goes, goes deeper than that because what he sees is that the prison system, you know, uh, not only does it punish people who are, you know, poor and black and brown, not, not only are there all of these inequities, but it it's punitive in a way that's, I think, quite shocking by the end, because what he talks about is how he went on a hunger strike uh, with others in, in, his, um, in, in the prison because the authorities were going to take the library away, right? So this sort of gives the lie to this idea that there's any, it's, you know, prison is anything about rehabilitation or, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, at all geared towards, you know, creating conditions under which prisoners could set themselves up to reintegrate into society. What you get is just the most sort of mean-spirited, dehumanizing action, like you don't even get to read. <laughs> and yeah. so I think in that, he he just brings in, he also talks about how he worked um, essentially, you know, uh, for nothing, right? So no minimum wage laws. He worked for 40 cents a day making the meat patties yeah. that then are fed to the children in the public schools. Um, and so you see the way that it, the prison system is imbricated in, you know, creating a sort of underclass of, you know, uh, 
not even like 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 just like sub wage laborers um the way it's it's tied to to education or the lack thereof so it's he's a really powerful um character and and so he comes in in the book in the chapter that's about the tension between expertise and mass opinion right and the fact that democracy needs both of those and so he's there as as someone who you know challenges who's an expert but also um ta- looks at the fact that you know people want to learn i mean if you look at the history of the working class it's people desperate to have opportunities to engage with the life of the mind and people have fought really hard for the right to do that and it's been suppressed at every juncture right and so this image of someone taking the library away is just this very vivid um example of a much larger historical trend Right. I, I think it's it's brilliant because it shows that I think understanding the role of freedom in democracy is understanding freedom, not just as you put, not just the negative liberty of Isaiah Berlin, but of uh, the, the, the civic kind of uh, participation and republicanism of uh, Rousseau, uh, where if it was simply about mere domination, uh, then there would be no need to remove the library, Right. But removing the library signals that there's something emancipatory about people finding their way to educate themselves, right? And that it's a dangerous thing. The arts and education are dangerous because people can become as wise or wiser than those that have power and domination over them. And they can throw off that yoke because democracy is possible. That's why it's dangerous, right? Yeah. And, it, it you know, it is tied up in – yeah, I really – I like that. I mean it's like if it was – if it was just a way for people to pass the time, it would be fine. But there's this emancipatory quality, and that's why – I mean, I think there was, it was in the news recently, too, that you know prisoners were not – were being banned from receiving books about the criminal justice system. Um, so, I mean – you know, I, there is this, I, it gets to, again, this sort of paradox of like, well, how do you create an undemocratic, un, how do you create a democratic people out of an undemocratic people or the reverse, right? How do you create an undemocratic people out of a democratic people? And, you know, if you have people who, you know, are saying we want to learn and then your response is taking away their access to that opportunity, then you're actively producing an undemocratic citizenry, right? A, a citizenry that, that is going to be you know, um, more ignorant and less engaged. And so, you know, in the, there are different aspects of that chapter, but I think it's really important to challenge this idea that comes up in sort of liberal discourse around democracy, which is like, oh, if we just had education, we, you know, that's what we need to solve the problem of democracy. We need more education. And it's like, well, hold on. Education to what end and education for what? And also look at the history of how elites have denied people the opportunity to learn and how working people and women have and have struggled for the opportunity again to live the life a life of the mind so i think i don't know part part of it is just you know that's such a pat response to the crisis we're in and it it's something that really needs to be be challenged because it, it you know of course, it has a mode of truth, right? We need education for democracy, but it quickly spirals into this this <laughs> sort of like blame the teacherism that we see today too, where it's like teachers are public poor public school teachers who are basically supposed to like, you know, create jobs that don't exist by educating students correctly. They're also supposed to be like, 
uh, military force like fighting off shooters. They're supposed to, you know, yeah. remedy racial inequities. They're supposed to somehow teach kids who haven't been able to like eat breakfast. So I think there's, there's something in, there's just something with that that I, I just really wanted to push the argument further. Right. And the, on, on the other hand, the, um, the students, the, the way that education is conducted has been twisted around as well. So that the only thing that people are concerned about as students are, can I get a job? That this is the ideology that's drilled into you. I remember this even at, at, at you know, Reed College. I was a chemistry major because chemistry pays good money. Um, and it probably would have if I had become a chemist, which I unfortunately <laughs> did not. But yeah, that, but like the uh, as you say, you know, the the this um, the idea of education as creating citizens has been totally supplanted in the in in the sort of internal ideology of edu- the educational system as producing workers, and that I that I feel like is a pretty uh, a pretty toxic development. I remember we talked about Gramsci on an episode and we saw in the New York Times Magazine a full page ad for a company that I, I, I believe what they do is they make an arrangement with your employer so that part of your paycheck goes to paying off the student loan debt. And it had the image of a, a young college student who had a shirt on and um, and it had like a number like 68,769, which is obviously like her student debt. And, and the, the, the top said, uh, why did she go to college? And then at the bottom, it says to work for you. And, and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is like mask off. This wow, is so like, like, this person is this trapped, $68,000 trapped. <laughs> Uh, but but like it was, she was smiling. She's like, I went to college so I could get into debt to pay off my debt by you enacting this business to help me pay off the debt that I went into to work for you and be your wage slave. Uh, and I'm smiling about it. Like, and that's what education is. Yeah. Well, no. And I think this, you know, and this really, you know, I think it totally transforms. I mean, it's part of the the neoliberal transformation, right, is that instead of thinking of education as a sort of broadly exploratory uh, experience or, okay, we're going to be well-rounded in the liberal arts, sort of like that that time at Reed College, right? Okay, we're going to have some basic humanities and basic sciences. It's like, no, I need to specialize and make sure I get a return on investment. And you know, so I think this is this is why so much of my organizing and my activist work is geared towards public education and around issues of student debt. Um, but I think, you know, I I think I, I think I say this in the book, but you know, I don't think we know what a truly democratic educational system would look like. I mean, we sort of know what we know what education looks like when it's geared towards industry. We know what education policy is like when we're kind of in a cold war competitive dynamic and trying to build up our, you know, human capital as a nation. We know what education is like under a neoliberal regime when people are trying to um, make themselves into successful entrepreneur students. But we don't really know what education in service of a different again, this goes to your issue of your 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 obsession with possibilities, right? Like we don't know what would be possible? We don't know what education would look like if, if the priority actually were educating everyone to engage in some right. kind of self-rule, right? And without and that, that yeah. without 
totally without making it so that it's just about sort of social control and you know keeping people off the streets or making people good workers or um <laughs> or good debt debt payers yeah and that's why your book is so great because it's an invitation to to think anew what that might mean to live well together right that's uh, as you also point out, that's there's a reason that as democracy in ancient Greece arose, kind of the the need for political philosophy arose as well to to kind of as Arendt would say to think what we are doing and to figure this out. Right? Yeah, well, I like that idea that you know these two things actually go hand in hand. Democracy, which in which invites every person to have an opinion, right, and then it requires public philosophy. Um, yeah, so I think there is a there is a a co-relationship there's something there that these these two terms these these two concepts of democracy and philosophy are united i mean i think but democracy is also risky right because when you're inviting everyone to have an opinion you're inviting them to have bad opinions <laughs> you're yeah. i mean to to you know to question the value of democracy i mean this is you know i say i, I you know again to go back to the idea that you know democracy made plato's anti-democratic musings possible right so there's always the risk mm-hmm. of self-destruction um but what are you going to do life is uncertain <laughs> that's it, that's it. No, <laughs> like, choices, we're not able, we can't freeze things too. entropy is real um yeah. so yeah. Yeah. it's just it's right. it's a risk it's just it's not a risk entropy is just a reality <laughs> Yeah, so we have to take that leap of faith because the alternative is to cede power. Right? My question is for you, as as someone with you know, a, as the Greek, uh, what did you think about the representation of Greek politics? Right, because in a way, I'm also in the film. You know, Greece plays a big role in both, and especially in the film, I have to really whittle it down to uh, a movie, a movie parable. Right. Right. I think I think you captured it really, really well, and I'm so glad that the bulk of it, I, you know, you, you focus a little bit on, on uh, Syriza and Chipras, but uh, the bulk of it is spent like at the clinic and with the people on the ground and their experience of all the things as as they're happening, or, or even as you mentioned earlier, uh, the professor's own daughter, who's who's talking about right political philosophy, and uh, her daughter has to be in Denmark because of right the crisis, and that was uh, such a beautiful thing to me um and to show i think current athenians and current greeks are and this is another thing in the states that that often gets lost is politics is pervasive it's it's not just something that happens on cable news or or during when people vote and for the greeks especially amidst all these crises um it's daily struggle, resistance, opening a clinic to serve the people who aren't being served by the government because global capital has just squeezed the life out of the country. It's it's the it's the you know Syntagma Square and other squares, the protests. It's the thinking and acting. And so it was really beautiful and touched me so much to see you to weave the the theory and action uh, through the lives of the actual people, um, from from just uh, doctors to teenagers to professors. So it, it meant a lot to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, four hundred. You know, the thing is, like, you know, in the film, it's hard to get those facts in, right? Because too many facts would weigh the film down and kill it. So, you know, I get to put the facts in the book. You know, so, um, you know, 400,000 young Greeks left after the economic crisis. That's a huge number of people in a country that has, what, 11 million souls in it, right? right. I mean, so this is a Massive. massive, you know, immigration. So... You know, these things, but I also was keenly aware of the fact that when it comes to one's, the country's politicians, uh, Greek people are very 
angry and opinionated. So I felt like, you know, putting any <laughs> any political figures in there was like a major risk. They'd be like, why there's did a, you put? <laughs> there's a, there's an old Greek joke. It goes something like this. What, what do you get when you put uh, three Greeks in a room together? Four political parties. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I was like whatever I do, I'm going to make somebody mad here. So I know it was on risky ground. <laughs> I, but it I, was cool. You you had that. Just one, one last thing. I, I like how you juxtapose kind of the, the one Greek that represented maybe the golden dawn uh, fear of kind of Muslims overrunning and the refugees overrunning the country, and then juxtaposing that with another Greek who was very welcoming and had philoxenia and is, is very much saying, "Well, Greekness isn't so simple anyway." And that was a, that was a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's what happens when you just talk to people in the streets. You know, it's better than Twitter. I, <laughs> I was I was curious. Um, to, did, did you try to interview uh, Giannis Varoufakis? I did in the early, um, like you know, in my early sort of casting my net wide, and then we were just never in the never in the same place. He wasn't in Athens when I was there. Um, yeah, so I, I guess was, I, I was, definitely I read you know I read all of his books as when I was doing the research and thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, I was I was curious to think you know he he paints a certain picture of of how like like why. Tsipras went back on all of his promises and 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 Varoufakis says that, that basically he was kind of co-opted by Angela Mer- Angela Merkel and the you know the Eurocrats um and uh I'm sure his like account is somewhat self-serving but it does ring basically true you know because he was he was the guy who stuck to his guns but on the other hand um he he was this like longtime outsider. He had really very little political experience and and was patently terrible at bureaucratic infighting. And um, I'm just curious. You you know it it raises the question of leadership. You know um, you you have Syriza, which is backed by this like overwhelming democratic uh, you know majority, saying you know. Do whatever it takes. Just just get us out of this this stranglehold, and he eventually folds. Um, Varoufakis, for all of his other you know flaws, he didn't. He he stuck to his guns and ended up resigning right as finance minister. So, how do you view the 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 uh, the problem of of leadership in a democracy? And and insofar as you have leaders, like how 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 do you kind of ensure or just just think about the the question of the leadership doing you know what they're what they're told so to speak i think i mean it's a really tricky question in the greek context and it's hotly debated i mean i think one interesting thing that i couldn't get in the film but that's mentioned in the book is that you know i think cyprus just expected a different outcome from the referendum right so when they called the yeah. referendum you know which is like vote yes or no on the on the new bailout agreement, I think he expected people to vote yes, <laughs> because it would have sort of, you know, assuming people that, that, that symbolized people sort of staying in the Eurozone and in business as usual, right? So that it would lend legitimacy to him making the choice he ultimately made. So that speaks to this broader trend in Europe we're seeing of leaders calling for votes and then not realizing what's actually going to happen. I mean, that's the Brexit story too, right? Is Cameron saying, okay, we're going to have a referendum and then look what happened. Um, yeah. So I think that's, 
you know, I think there are definitely people, there are people in Syria who said, well, hold on, you know, if, if you cannot, um, you know, if you can't follow the, uh, will of the majority like basically what what should happen is like you should resign if you're you're in a position where you have to violate your principles right and i think it it speaks i think there's all sorts of theories about well hold on what is leadership is a leader someone who's like following the call of their conscience and you know should stick to their principles no matter what or is the leader supposed to be kind of a, a vessel for the will of the people in whatever direction the people goes in even if it violates their personal principles so you know i i i don't have um I don't really have a hard and fast theory around that in part because I actually did some filming with different political leaders who had really interesting arguments for different kinds of leadership. Um, I do, I do think, uh, on the leadership question, you know, we, I think the, the, one of the opening quotes from Plato that I put in the film is pretty much right on, right? The price for declining to rule is to be ruled by people lesser than yourself or whatever it says, right? Yeah, so this is yeah. it. I mean, you know, the problem is, um, you know, if we don't step up and engage in this process of democracy, then we're going to get the leaders we deserve. They're not going to be very good ones. Um, but I think there are lots of people who, looking at the Greek case, basically thought if he's going to have to, you know, rule in a way that's antithetical to everything he stood for, then why, do, why does he want that position, Right. Why, why not resign um, and let someone else do that? But then, obviously, you know, he he went office again. So Greek people felt that he was better than the alternative in a lot of ways. Yeah. Unfortunately, that, that's the yeah. sad reality Rocking of the choices available. Yeah, I mean, I one, my my archival researcher for the film. One of my archival archival researcher worked for his administration pretty high up, and I quote her in the book, and she says, you know, the problem is that we did everything that we were supposed to do as the left, right? We yeah. we occupied, we rioted, yeah. we went on strike, we built a political party, that political party took power, and yep. that's not enough. And so I think for me, what I take away from that whole, you know, story is that we we need to think about what the next level is, right? So if a left-wing party taking power in one country isn't enough for them to chan- challenge these bigger forces, then we have to start <laughs> figuring out how to actually do that old left idea of the international, right? Of building exactly. cross-border solidarity. And, you know, and that's a, a wonderful idea. We don't yet know how to do it in practice, but we have to make it a priority. So, you know, I think there's just a challenge to those of us, especially those of us who want to see left-wing governments win or left candidates win. It's like, you know, it's not that we just need to elect someone we like more and then it's going to be a beautiful new day, right? Because we're up against incredibly strong, organized um, uh, systems that, you know, it's, it's not like you just get the figurehead that you identify with and then like capital gives you the keys and it says like, have a nice day. <laughs> no, that's not how capital acts usually. No, there, no, there, there, there so- is a thing about that though. You know, like I definitely sympathize with Tsipras and in, insofar as like Greek is a small and weak country, you know, it's beset by economic crisis and whenever the, you know, d- government steps out of line, the European Central Bank causes a deliberate bank run in the country to try to just, like, like cudgel the citizenry into line. But on the other hand, you know, you see uh, you see lefties around the world, um, like, uh, 
who's the president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, and and various other people saying like, yeah, Bernie, get in there. And I think one reason for that is that, um, you know, as an American, if, if you if you were to be in the position of Syriza at the head of the American state, your power is unimaginably larger. And those mechanisms of capital actually are just the mechanisms of the American state apparatus, which they have sort of colonized over the years. And you so you can see why people like that are because, you know, the, the, the president or you know, maybe with the backing of Congress, could flip the switches and say, capital controls, and we're, we're, we're clamping down on the SWIFT uh, payment transfer system and so on. And, um, you know, because, I mean, that's the, America is at the apex of this vast system. And, um, you know, uh, obviously, I would, I would not say, put all your hopes in Bernie, he'll do everything for you, of course. But, the 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 situation of a of a leftist president of the United States would be a, a very different uh, situation from uh, from you know tiny little European country. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, because if you look at Syriza in Greece in the last five years and how different their circumstances were than the Labour Party in the UK in the 40s, right, where there wasn't the problem of capital yeah. flight, right, so they could create a welfare state. I mean, I think it's a really interesting thought experiment, you know, what could a democratic socialist executive in the U.S. do? Because we would see capital freak the fuck out, (laughs) you know? That's right, Um, that's right. You know, I mean, I don't know, someone tweeted at me the other day, I said something that was, somebody misread or something, they were like, do you, you know, it's Bernie's foreign policy, because I think, you know, he's rightly been coming out strong as an anti-war candidate. And the fact is, American people, American voters are anti-war voters. Trump was an anti-war candidate. Obama was an anti-war candidate, right? They delivered the opposite. Um, and someone, you know, and so someone says, well, don't you think Bernie would deliver on this? And I was like, well, he might want to, but we're talking about like huge vested interests in uh, the, the like military suppliers. I mean, we, we, you know, we have no idea what yeah. the response would be to an anti-war Sanders presidency from those um, sectors of the economy. So, you know, I'd be happy. Risk, I, I mean, I think, thinking, I think, right? I think it would be great to see, but I think we better be, be ready because, you know, you would need, um, again, it's not just, you know, I know we all agree on this, but it's, yeah, it's not just, it's not just the person in office. They have to be backed up by, by organized people power. It has to be from the bottom up, as you say, right? Democracy from the bottom up. And, and we have to call on each other to negotiate our conf- – I mean, if you go – I love that you put, you know, Democratic Socialists of America in the same breath as Pericles. But if you've gone to some DSA meetings, you, you can see some problems, right? Um, but, like, it's true. We have to take that leap of faith and try and try the best we can from the bottom up to navigate all these things. And, and I think, you know, it reminded me of your discussion with, with Wendy Brown. And this might be, for me – the most challenging project that we have to navigate is the, as she says, supranational forces of global capital as against 
the the demos, which has to be bounded, right, and has to to have some type of uh, unity and, and understand. Uh, we have to understand ourselves as some polity, some polis. Um, but that international solidarity that you speak of seems to be the way that we might be able to dismantle global capital. But it's a tremendously daunting thing um, that maybe we just have to leap into and see what we can yeah. do. I mean, right? I think uh, yeah. I mean, I think it is daunting, and that's why. You know, again, we know, we kind of conceptually know the answers. The answer, the answer is international solidarity. It's, you know, working across borders when we have common enemies. How we actually do that is, is very difficult. Um, even in a, even in an age where we have, you know, global communication infrastructure and, you know, all of these obstacles that people were dealing with at the end of the 19th century aren't plaguing us. I mean, I think when we talk about democracy from below, it can sound kind of romantic, right? Oh, democracy from below. It has to be from the bottom up, the grassroots. I have come to the position that it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's not a romantic thing to say that. It's just politically realistic, right? Because we're human beings and we all have to live somewhere. And if we are not powerful in the places we live, right? In our communities, in our workplaces, in our districts, then how the hell are we going to have power at a higher level, right? I mean, this is, there's no skipping this step, right? And so, um, you know, we might get lucky once in a while and have a party or a person we sympathize with holding power at a higher level. But if we don't have mechanisms by which we can reach them or hold them accountable or exert pressure on the next uh, group, we're not going to be able to make any sort of um, it have an impact or make change. So to me, you know, the, you, you just, it's like, you can't skip the local. It's not some small is beautiful, you know, right. um, countercultural localism. It's the fact yep. that, you know, we're people and this is, this is the scale at which we, at which, at which we live our lives. Um, yeah, that's a, you know, maybe thinking about this, um, the 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 individual bottom up sort of thing. Um, one th- one topic I appreciated in the book, which which uh, we've discussed on the podcast before, is the idea of sortition. Um, and uh, could, so, could you explain how that how that works? Uh, how that worked rather in in uh, old Athenian democracy, and and um, you know why that might be an idea worth dusting off. Yeah, it's interesting. So sortition, it's an it's a word for uh it, it's another word for lottery, right? For selecting representatives as opposed to electing representatives. And so Aristotle was very clear on this that democracy was not elections, right? So, you know, the elections are our default conception of what a democracy is, right? Okay, we we we've, we've had elections. We must be, must be a democracy. To an ancient Athenian, they'd be like, you're crazy. Elections are aristocratic because the rich and the well-born and the well-spoken are going to win. Um, now we would add the reality TV star to the litany of characters <laughs> with a, an advantage. But, you know, so I think it's, so I think that I just love that sort of challenge, right? That we think we know what democracy is. And yet this culture that we attribute the concept to would actually just be totally mortified um by our by our definition um i think that sortition is a very interesting thing for leftists to think about because what leftists in my opinion want to do is figure out how to share power 
right? And, and, you know, another way the Greeks put this was to rule and be ruled in turn. And, um, and we see all the pathologies of elections. I mean, especially now, I mean, it's like we're living 2020 around the clock. I mean, at least other countries have, you know, parliamentary systems have like short elections. Like we just live in this perpetual media moneymaker, right? Because it's just like, um, so I think I'm coming more and more on the side of this of like, let's get rid of elections and just randomly select people just to like save my mental health. Um, uh, but, but, you know, we, we do have vestiges of the system. We have vestiges of, of sortition and lottery in the jury system. The idea that we should be able to have a jury of our peers. Um, uh, scholars, I don't know if these are the people you've to- spoken to, but there, you know, are some scholars, there's a collection out from Verso Books and, they make the case, you know, they're like, well, what sort of system could we imagine where lottery is used? And they say, okay, well, what if one house, the people's house was selected and then another, the other house was elected, right? To sort of reap the benefits of both yeah. methods. Um, but I, you know, but I think, I think it's, it's, I think it actually could be a useful uh, method of bringing people into democratic processes um, and is one we're thinking about. I just recently did a film screen with Nancy Fraser, the political philosopher, and she Wonderful. was, well, she was just like, I hate that idea because her, her, <laughs> idea, her uh, objection was that she felt that it would eliminate deliberation. In other mm. words, that elections, when we have two candidates vying for office, it sure. creates conditions through which the public deliberates and weighs pros and cons, right? Whereas randomness sort of bypasses that, eliminates yeah, the idea of parties. But then, of course, the people selected then have to deliberate, right? It just, it to me, it shifts the side of deliberation and then brings all sorts of questions into play, such as like, well, how do you ensure that the citizenry broadly is capable of deliberation if you select them at random so i mean but I, her objection i think is worth considering and thinking through um yeah. uh but uh but i do think we need to break the stranglehold of elections on our imaginations and i think this is you know this is why i i'm adamant that we have to think democracy not just as a political phenomenon but as something that has to be ex- expanded into the economic sphere into the domestic sphere um, and uh, you know, is, is we have to challenge the sort of sanctimony we have around elections in America right now. Yeah. yeah it's a way of life, right? Politics is a way of life. You, you mentioned, uh, I love this, this etymology of the word idiot in English. It comes from the Greek, right? That, that means a private person who doesn't understand uh, the role of the citizen to ha- to care about the polis and the common good, right? And just cares about his or her own affairs. And there's something in, so in ancient Greece, like sortition selected, but then anyone could just show up and propose a law, right? And, and everyone felt that, um, their identity was bound up with this active life, which I think capitalism, especially neoliberalism, um, drains us of energy, time, and builds us, as you say, uh, into consumers, right? Who think that we can just kind of, uh, well, hashtag resistance, that's the most political that anyone can be, right? Uh, instead of shifting our way of thinking how to be with our families, with our friends, with our communities uh, at all levels, it's, it's a total shift. And, and so any 
policy change or change in how we do any procedures would have to be bound up, I think, with these overarching shifts in how we orient ourselves to our communities and to politics. Yeah, well, and you know, I, I got into the etymology of the term idiot, idiotus, because my my gut reactions, I'm sure many other people's would be, right, to the idea of lottery, of randomly selecting citizens to rule was, well, hold on, what if an idiot is selected, right? And the point is that our society makes idiots of all of us because we are encouraged to only think about the private and not to think about the public. And to the ancient Greeks, an idiot was someone who only cared about themselves and didn't engage in these collective processes. I mean, I think, um, you know, there are other things, though. I mean, you know, obviously we live in a far larger society. It's much more complicated, though I will say, you know, the Athenians were amazingly inventive in terms of making machines out of marble and bronze that would randomly select juries and make sure that they couldn't be corrupted, etc. But there was like a strong religious unity that we don't have in our society. So I think there's still this question. I think the, pl- the, the places that I don't go in the film or the book, right, but that are important are sort of like, well, what holds a community together, right? What is you know, Durkheim wrote about this, right? What is the sacred? What is, what is, what yep. is the solidarity that unites us? You know, and for the Greeks, it was religion. And, you know, for lots of human history, that has been it. I think in our world, it's the market, right? So that even if we don't get along, we can engage in exchange. And so I think we still, there's still this question of like, well, yeah, what is it? What, what, what is, is the bond? I mean, you know, I think sometimes as leftists, we dream like, oh, what can unite us is like, realizing that we have a common enemy, right? The capitalists, mm. <laughs> the exploiters. But that I don't think that's enough yeah, to hold us together. Enough. So I think yeah. there's there are questions yeah. there that that deal with a kind of deeper a deeper existential dilemma that I sort of bypass, not to point out my own flaws, but the flaws of my work, but you know, I think that's that's something we do have to think about as we try to build build unity and and build this idea of, of right. solidarity that the left dreams of there the next book maybe the next film perhaps right yeah i i was i was struck by you you interview this this uh a, a woman i think must be a college student in south florida who who goes she she's com- she complains you know she has like the fox news brain that uh you know, black people are getting all the good welfare. And she goes on, you know, to specifically mention that your parents can only make up to $150,000 or whatever before you are expected to pay everything out of the FAFSA contribution. And it, and it's just, it's really, you know, you think about sortition, you're like, oh boy, this, this person's going to be in Congress or whatever. But on the other hand... I mean, she basically you, is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, right, I mean yeah, that's, that's basically who we have in Congress, so that's the problem. That yeah, no, that, right. A, yeah, imagine if we had sortition. What if there's a racist dipshit in my in, whole in class? The so I have to say, Ryan, my whole class, every single student, when watching that moment, they cringed and moaned out loud when she was talking, and they were so embarrassed on their own behalf because she's their age, right? Yeah, and and, and after and afterwards, a lot of them were like, "I don't know if we can trust democracy." Look at that example, and and so I tried to say, well. You know, she's been conditioned in this way. What if she had to actually rule? Like, what if she had to go in there and actually make the laws? Don't you think that would form and shape her in a different way? Would she come out the same way? And and one of the students was like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't trust it." But, but I think that's that's the open question. We take people as static and fixed when we can shape right people and how they are. Yeah, and and it maybe raises the the uh, the possibility of a democratic 
um, policy um, imaginary, for lack of a better word, st structuring your policies such that they are very clear and comprehensible. Because what jumps out at this person is that she has been given so much by the government. There's, I would guess, her parents are getting huge write-offs from the mortgage interest deduction, other, lots of other tax benefits, yeah. probably it's investment no yeah. income, yeah. all the you know roads, fire, firefighters, police, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet, what she sees is the way that when you go to college, the way the policy is explicitly designed is to exclude her, um, to say like you're too rich, you can't, you can't do this. Whereas if you were to say, oh, college is free for everyone. And that maybe would inculcate, at least to some degree, a different attitude where you could not possibly deny the fact that that the the, the polity, the government was benefiting you, and you couldn't retreat to this this like, oh, I I made my pile, I I I didn't have help from anybody. Um, yeah, and yeah, the city brought you up as as Ephemia. Uh, yeah. Is that yeah. her name? Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the city brought you up, and so I think that that is a beautiful connection, right? This idea of what when when um, when Plato talks about being embedded in the city, right? It is about those structures being visible. And, you know, I think you're, you're exactly right. I think as leftists, what we have to do is not just say, oh, the state should provide more, but bring the state, you know, uh, Susan Mutler talks about the submerged state, right? All of those invisible forms of welfare and affirmative action that disproportionately white people and wealthy people don't get to they don't have to have to think of themselves as receiving benefits, right? Bring those into focus so that um, they're more legible and then uh, and then distribute them in a more egalitarian way so that, yeah, we can see that we're, you know, none of us are self-made, right? The city's brought all of us up. But I think she's, she, you know, I, in my feminist approach to the film, I let some of the bad guys be women, right? There are some very brilliant young women in the film and there are some very scary Young women. And so there are, there's also the young woman at the, earlier in the film who says, I don't care about the word democracy. I just care about the American dream and that ability to climb. Right. So she yeah. also doesn't see all of the benefits, all of the structural conditions that have elevated her. Right. So what, what, and, and what she's saying basically in, you know, knowing the larger context of the conversation, what she's essentially saying to me is, I care about capitalism. I don't care yeah. about democracy. And I think that's a very interesting thing for us to just be blunt about in this moment because um because there is there is a sort of bifurcation, right? We know this that you know capitalism and democracy are kind of splitting apart and that post-1989 consensus is fraying. And those of us on the left tend to focus on the renewed interest in democracy, right? And the renewed enthusiasm about socialism. I think we also need to be attentive to the fact that there's a wave of young conservatives who are kind of going back to their conservative roots, right? Which is like a, an explicitly aristocratic, anti-democratic, proudly elitist yeah. perspective. They're not dressing themselves up in populist rhetoric, right? Um, they're, yeah. they have a totally different attitude, which is like, we want what's ours <laughs> and we want to That's fortify right. our privileges. And we want to do that through the electoral college. And we want to do that through the Senate. And we want to do that through, you know, voter ID laws and gerrymandering. And it's our right. And we're entitled to, cause we are better than everybody else. Um, and, and that 
I don't, you know, I think right now in the in the sort of mainstream conversation about you know the political turmoil, there's just uh, the the emphasis on populism is actually like kind of distracting us from this mm. anti-democratic term turn on the right, and that's that's more what I encountered when I went out and interviewed people. Right? They mm. weren't saying like they knew they don't have numbers. These young people, they're like 22, and they know they don't have numbers on their side. They're on a college campus. They know yeah. they're loathed by most of their classmates. Right? right, it's in their face every day what a minority they are, and they want a politics of minority rule. Yeah. Well, um, we should probably let you go. Yeah, uh, on that happy and, note. And, and, <laughs> and, unless you want to talk more, we can always <laughs> no, talk more. Good. Good. Much... Let let the people go home. No, it's... yeah. <laughs> um, the book is called uh, "Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone," and the film is. Film, film is called What is Democracy? Is that right? Yes, and it's available yeah. now on Canopy through most people's, uh, most libraries, university libraries, public libraries, and it's also on Amazon and iTunes to rent. Yeah, and the book is also available, you know, wherever you get your your book products. So Absolutely. Independent bookstores, highly recommended. I would also highly recommend watching the film and reading the book. They're so complimentary, and I really enjoyed um, both of them together as, as a distinct experience. So, uh, yeah, thanks again, Astrid Taylor. It's been really wonderful thinking through, as you, as you noted, the, the risks and pitfalls, as well as the, as the opportunities and possibilities that uh, socialism, democracy, and living well together uh, uh, have for us in the future. So let's, let's, let's do this thing. Let's do it. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Bye-bye. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.